Political Unmuted is a weekly politics show based in the northeast of England. The audience chooses the topics and we discuss them. So enjoy Political Unmuted. And welcome to Political Unmuted, the second um, show of the new series. And it's dark outside. It's suddenly dark outside. I've spent the last hour terrified that I missed the start. I kept sort of looking at things. Oh, they must have started. I missed the start. I missed the start. And you say, and lovely to see you, uh, listeners, and people watching um, on the podcast later, or listening, I suppose, on the podcast later. Um, you are so very, very welcome. Uh, today, it's me asking the questions, John D. Clare, and I have the Dream Team. Uh, say hello, Dream Team, Paul Daly. Oh, Hello waiting. there. Um, Laura Daly. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Stuart Sutherland. Hello. Quiet and noble. Sam Townsend. Hello. It's the ex-secretary. So um, <laughs> we, um, we, we, we're ready to go. We, sort of, uh, we have got another guest, we hope. Uh, we'll be able to bring onto the show at the beginning of the second session um, after 10 uh, p.m. But for the moment, it's just us answering the questions that you chose on the poll that you wanted to talk, as ever, talk about. My golly, there's some um, some things that to, to talk about today. But before we start, uh, let's start with our moment of the week. And um, Paul wants to go first. I'm not. I'm just going to do this. Oh. As always, our seamless professional production here, uh, sort of with everything going smoothly. Um, yes, it is moment of the week, and I'll start with Paul anyway, just to serve him right through me. <laughs> okay, um, so I guess my moment of the week is the national insurance hike. I guess we're probably going to talk about this kind of thing next week, uh, if if the poll is interested in doing that. But it wouldn't it wouldn't be right not to mention the fact that the Tories are breaking an election pledge and they're breaking it in like the a tax rise on national insurance is the most regressive way to do it. It hits the people at the lower end and in the middle hard and it lets the top people off. And we've just seen this situation where we've got like, we've got national insurance is going up, council tax is going up, cost of living's going up. I'm a teacher, I'm getting a pay freeze because I'm a key worker and I'm so important because I'm a key worker, but I'm not important enough to get a pay rise. I'm getting a real terms pay cut with all those extra costs as well. And uh, and it's not just me, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll be fine, I'm sure. But like, you know, generally the idea of key workers, we were supposed to come together and support them. Meanwhile, billionaires have increased their wealth by a third in the space of the pandemic and you just think they are laughing their heads off at us they think we are utterly stupid they think we've managed to trick those stupid thick people into into voting for us and now we're going to crap on them from a massive height because you know what 
We do this for our donors. We don't do it for you. There is no such thing as leveling up. There is only such thing as leveling up their funds. And just to add in a final little thing, I'm currently like uh, listening on an audiobook to the Panama Papers. And like, it's such a, what a disgraceful thing when they were hiding all the money. The only, like the billionaire money, that's just the money we know about. That's just the money they're willing to declare. They'll be hiding things. There'll be all sorts of things going on. We don't know the half of it. They are laughing at ordinary people. And this is the world in which we live. And uh, Keir Starmer today said, No longer can the Conservatives be considered to be the party of low tax. And you're like, right oh, way to miss an open goal again. Well done, matey. Thank you, Paul. Um, if you're a new listener, Paul never does moment of the week. He always has two or three which he crams into the same <laughs> Um, and uh, thank you very much um, sort of uh, uh, sort of Sam what's your moment of the week is it as long well, I, as a 30-something-year-old woman, newly elected county councillor, watched my first Twitch stream eSport the other day, and I loved it because it was Stardew Valley. Anybody who doesn't know anything about Stardew Valley, it's a it's a farming simulator game, and it's really, really good, and I love it, right? And the guy who made the game, his name is Concerned Ape, uh, it's not his real name, he's called something else, but that's his gamer name, his developer name. He made the game all by himself, he developed it all by himself, he's a genius, and um, he donated £40,000 of his own money as prize money for the 16 people who were trying to play his game really, really well within a four-hour period. So... Um, I just think so. some people listening to this who will be like, I have no idea what she just said. That was all gobbledygook to me. And they understand how much £40,000 is. And that's a lot of money to give to people on the internet for playing a game. But this is the world we're living in. Um, and it just goes to show you can't really assume anything about what's going to happen in the future because it totally blew my mind what was going on in front of me. And a lot of people will be totally oblivious to this phenomenon that's going on but you know these people are old enough to vote internet gaming sam is a big um thing i'm aware of that and they have huge international competitions and and, and the big thing but I, i'm i've never heard of twitch and mm. i'm absolutely at sea about this farm game I once wrote the farm game. I really did. I think it was published, but so I'm sure it was nothing like yours. So first of all, Twitch is a platform. Yeah, it's like YouTube for gamers. We go out on Twitch. There may be people watching us on Twitch right now. And it's very immersive, the way that it shows everything, the way that it shows it's got loads of really exciting emojis that really, like, drag you in um, and different ways of displaying information. But, yeah, it is like... And, and you get adverts as well, just like you do on YouTube. And that's interesting as well, how the adverts are different for that demographic. Uh, there was a, a really, really good skincare ad that was aimed at sort of 20 year old men which was really interesting <laughs> um but yeah it's interesting how different people are going to different places on the internet receiving different messages um and choosing to spend their time and money in different ways one, so one of the players had played the game if it was his full-time job for eight hours he would have played the game for like three years 
Shut it now. Uh, do you download Twitch as an app then, or, or do you sign on? How do you go on Twitch? Yeah, just like on on YouTube, you've got an app for your tablet or your phone, and and the web web page for your desktop computer. Right, it's just yeah, like I'm, that. I'm sorry to cut you off, Sam, but the, so the, we, we've got to get down to the discussion. <laughs> and the last thing, tell us about the farm game. What what does it? How on earth is it a game? I mean, what, what it's, it's just a beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of of brain space where you you have a farm. You've got to grow plants and you've got to make friends with the people in the town and if you make friends if you talk to somebody in the town enough and you give them all of their favorite things then they might marry you and you can have babies all right now there was a <laughs> what was the name of that family it was, is it similar to that family game where you they weren't called the smurfs so there's, there's some sims. The Sims, yes, where you could set fire to the house and kill people. I mean, yeah, it... <laughs> I guess the, the guy. It's 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 more like um, no, it's gone. Um, but it is. It's a simulator. It's another one of these, yeah, life simulator type games where you know. Okay. Thank you. Um, and again, sorry <laughs> to you, but I'm going to move on. But, oh, it's uh, fine. South of town's ending in a different world to me. And it's sort of moving off into the distance, leaving me behind. Stuart, hopefully you've got a more um, comprehensible um, moment of the week for an old man. Yeah, I, I love how excited and interested you were in, you know, what is essentially, you know, a children's game. I don't want to say children's game, a game for anybody. Anyway, uh, yeah, my moment of the week is uh, in my town, we're having a, an election that nobody wants. So uh, there's a town council by-election and the general feeling uh, is that we shouldn't be having it, cost too much money. You know, we were only just out of an election where only one person didn't get onto the town council. There were other options and we're just kind of like, we've been having campaign meetings and everybody's a bit like, I wish we weren't having to do this. For all we want somebody, you know, on our end of the table at town council. Nobody really wants to, to have an election for it. That's very interesting because there was a similar thing at Great Acliffe and, and an attempt, um, not by the Labour Party, I might point out, to um, actually fiddle things and keep things quiet and under wraps in the hope that we could just not appoint anybody to that position at all. Absolutely illegal. Um, the only reason you have an, a, an election, Stuart, is if anybody stands. If nobody stands, well, then you just quietly co-opt. So there must be people standing out there. Well, we, clearly, I think the signatures, is it 10 signatures goes into, uh, like, DC Safros or electoral services. And we've had four candidates. One of them's a Labour member. Good. So there's, you know, there's, there's interest in it from that small group of people, but the general feeling is nobody really wants an election in the village, or to town, should I say, a town. So, so I mean, I mean, you'll be at your next, your moment in the week, in, in, uh, in a few weeks, we'll tell us what the turnout was. Um, yeah, it's sort of, I mean, uh, we may be talking about the, the dying of democracy later on in the programme. Uh, Laura, moment of the, your week. Well, <laughs> I didn't have one before we started. Um, so I've had to have a quick think. 
the thing is about this week is that I, had, I know for a fact I had a load and I kept thinking, oh, I best write that down for a moment of the week, except I didn't write any of them down. And then I had a car crash. So I, I'm probably going to go... Moment of the week, the car crash? Maybe. Or um, the kids went to school great. Are you all right? The first that, day of the week. Are you okay after your car crash? Yeah, I'm so I'm also on um a lot of naproxen right now. So if I don't make any sense, that's why. <laughs> but um no, what I decided to will be able was, to tell the difference from normal. Is it uh, <laughs> well we'll see. <laughs> um so it's kind of like a blast from the past. Um it was a video that um Paul shared by somebody called Alan Watts, and it was on um a proper way of living. And it was all about um taking your time through things and, and not rushing to get to an end point and just sort of living in the here and now. Um and so I'm that was like, right, okay, I need to do that. I feel like I need to try and you know calm down. It was a really lovely video, and I suggest everybody watches it and um and lives within their own space and time and don't always think about tomorrow or think about now um so that was really lovely i just gotta try and live it now if i can <laughs> thank you live for the moment and don't worry about tomorrow thank you very much for that thought as we head out of uh, moment of the week and by the way hiya heather um lovely to see you joining the program the dream team you always say nice things about the dream team heather and the dream team loves you too. Okay, um, I've not forgotten Paul, I've not forgotten this time. Now it's time for the big story. What happens um, after the poll is that we see which questions are run the poll and then I sort of put them upon the uh, a little private group we've got on Facebook. And um, the dream teams squabble between themselves as to who gets what. Um, but this week it went just like that, 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 that. And poor old Paul, who wasn't in the conversation, he got the the, the last question that nobody wanted. So um, <laughs> the, uh, everybody got otherwise what they wanted. Um, Sam and, and and you start off. And this was, um, I thought, an intriguing um, headline. Um, not one that you wouldn't expect to, to read, to tell you the truth, because it fits in with stereotypes. Um, sort of Labour councils house eight times as many asylum seekers as Tory areas, analysis finds. I mean, is, is this just true to stereotypes, Sam? Like you say, it's really interesting as, as well when you think about the, the other stereotypes that people in maybe uh, Labour heartlines might, might be a bit racist, a little bit like, not we don't want outsiders here, that kind of attitude. Um, I just think, I mean, first of all, I will say that I've, I've, I mean, I've only had a very short career so far as a county councillor, but definitely the most proud I've been as being been able to give people information about how they can help with uh, the Afghan asylum seekers refugees that are coming into this country now um, and it's just a cry and shame that we're not helping more of these people I think the the story is that Darlington I don't know how many families County Durham is getting yet but Darlington's getting four families I think the whole of North Yorkshire was only getting eight families um so we can definitely help more people but what the story uh, in the where is that in the guardian says is that um 
there are eight times as many refugees and asylum seekers even before this Afghanistan uh, mess living in labour-run parts of Britain than conservative areas. And this is where the government could show that it really believes in levelling up because we know that these labour-run areas are, are more uh, badly affected by the way that council tax um, is set up, that Leafy Surrey gets a lot more money per council taxpayer than County Durham because it's based on property prices. Um, and what they're doing is they are locating refugees and asylum seekers in places where it's cheaper to live. And that tends to be labour run areas. Um, but the, the add on to that is that these areas have less money and less resource to help people. And, and that has the effect of entrenching the inequality that we already feel. So if they were really serious about levelling up, they would have a system where uh, refugees and asylum seekers are dispersed based on population size, um, but based on uh, giving everybody a fair share of who's coming into country, not giving the poorer areas with the least resources more people to help. We're happy to help them. Absolutely. Refugees are welcome in County Durham, but we do need the money to resource this kind of resettlement. Um, the, how well do you think Britain as a whole is doing in dealing with the... Uh, I mean, I, I read a thing in one of the newspapers that we only managed to get one of the 125 embassy guards that we promised we would uh, bring back to Britain. We only managed to get one of those back to Britain. I mean, is this just part of a wider failure? Um, sort of, um, is, is sort of getting, um, the, 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 the arguments are getting merged into the how, who deals with asylum seekers and, and refugees rather than specifically about the Afghan situation. Um, what, what's your take on the, the situation of actually helping Afghani Afghani refugees. How are we doing? I think, uh, unfortunately, there are, there have been some real crimes against people being done by us and by the Americans, and 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 that nobody will ever answer for that. Um, the fact is, not only have we left people behind, but we left behind the databases with all of the biometric information so that everybody who worked with us could be identified by the Taliban. The, the level at which we've betrayed people is, is off the scale. And, and, and we can go further than that. It's not just people who worked for us. There are people who worked for companies who worked for us, who were messed, or, messed around. There were people waiting, begging anybody who looked vaguely European to look at their documents at Kabul airport minutes before they were maimed and killed by, um, by Taliban. So what we've done to those people is horrendous. What we've done to the women who are lived and, and grew up in a society where they could be anything and now they're going to be locked in their family home. What we've done to them um, and the fact that there doesn't seem to be any, any plan to allow women to escape from Afghanistan is, is worrying and, and, and sad, but nobody will ever 
be accountable for this. It will just be, oh dear, well, there we go, we tried, and then we'll invade them again in 20 years' time. Thanks, Sam. Stuart, um, we're bringing these people into the country at a time when we're cutting universal credit. Um, we are not promising that they will be given leave to remain. God knows what they're going to do if we let them down on that. Um, sort of, uh, do, you, do you think that we're treating the refugees appallingly badly? Um, sort of when they've really had enough to ruin their lives already? I think it's uh, evidence that we treat all, you know, people in this country pretty badly if they don't have a lot of cash. You know, this, the things that uh, people, uh, you know, that they have a right to, like you would imagine food, education, uh, you know, a place to live, these are things that everyone considers a right but the government will take no responsibility in. And it applies to people, whether from County Durham or, you know, Sussex or Afghanistan. And it, it's sad that people haven't come to the realisation that we, we need to legislate better to support people properly to a, to a moral and ethical level. Um, Laura, um, a question for you. Um, the... Um... There has been an increase in hate crimes in areas taking large numbers of Syrian uh, refugees, particularly Afghan refugees. Um, and yet at the same time, there's been this massive outpouring of support in terms of, of, of donations. Do you think that um, the appalling nature of the government's response mirrors an appalling response by the British people? Or do you think that actually the British people uh, are doing as much as they can, and it's the government alone that's failing. What, what sort of how how would you rate the the country's response to this crisis? You're on mute, Laura. I did it. I can't believe it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that you ask me that question, actually, John, because I was talking to somebody about that very thing today, because um, people have such hatred for refugees and asylum seekers without ever having set eyes on one. Yet we can't give stuff away because all the donation banks are, are full, which is amazing. Um, it goes to show that people who really do care. But unfortunately, there, there is an aspect of society that um, doesn't want to know, doesn't want to help. Um, and I, I think that is as a result of the government's response to anybody who's othered, basically, anybody who's not um, white middle class. Um, asylum seekers have been treated appallingly. And, and the fact even here with, with um, asylum seekers from Syria um, and now Afghanistan coming in, they've been treated like political tools um to use to win votes so um the last time around at the election they were used um as a as a reward system basically for swing seats they would say to um swing voters well i tell you what if you vote for us we won't put all of these um refugees and asylum seekers in your town we'll put them somewhere else and nine times out of ten those places were poorer places also because they've got private contracts with people who were building the houses for these people and those private contracts are um in to build cheap houses 
because they're not going to make any money out of them and cheap houses obviously go into disproportionately poor areas um so it's just piling on and piling on and people who are already struggling then see all these asylum seekers who have you know we've been told from day dot that they're the problem with our society and the reason we're struggling then come and you know join our neighborhood and people are just like well what's this I don't want these people here so absolutely I think it is um just a complete reflection of how the government have forced people to think and forced people to feel um and have just let everyone down left right and center um it is really heartwarming to see people willing to give and willing to help um I think that there's a there's a lot of that the people who are the haters do tend to shout louder um but even then i think there's there's a distinction between those who are racist and those who are just struggling and have been sold a lie i mean one of the one of the constant things you hear laura isn't it that um uh you know um the uh i'm gonna call them the indigenous population and they are not just white the sort mm-hmm. of the people who live there in in, in the town um are having to wait um years for housing can't get a house for love and the money um and there's um a lot of objection that the refugees seem to come in and go to the top of the housing list um i mean one is is i mean how much is this an urban myth and how much is it actually a real problem and uh, yeah. secondly um what can be done about it if it is if it is the case well it's 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 not an urban myth as such. It's funny. I actually had this conversation as well at the gym <laughs> a few days ago before the accident. Um, the um, Yeah, so there are houses being built specifically for that are now earmarked for refugees and asylum seekers. However, those houses are very, very, very cheap and are not really up to code or scratch and are just being thrown up. Um of course, people around the area see those houses being built and go, well, hang on, I can't get a house. Um, so there, there are two issues there. It's, it's well, the one that encompasses it all is just the lack of care for anyone who needs any help. And that includes asylum seekers. It also includes people who have got jobs but can't afford to get their own house because our system's such a mess and our um, pay rates are so bad and inflation is terrible and the government don't look after anybody except themselves. And, you know, like I said earlier, the government do have a handy way of pointing the finger at the people they want you to blame and then expect people to be OK when they move in next door. It's all it's all it's all planned. It's all a system that's being designed this way um, because, you know, that that fear and hatred fuels votes. And I think we saw that with, you know, the B word and all of that. Um, it's much easier to get somebody on your side if you terrify them about something than it is to give them a bit of hope. And people are desperate. And I think they're too busy being desperate to see the cause of that, which is our government and our, you know, many years of austerity, um, rather than trying to look at the hopefulness and the positive of, wow, isn't it lovely that we're actually trying to help people who need help, who are fleeing war-torn countries. You know, it's like that that whole argument isn't even talked about it just gets lost in in that whole conversation um thank you laura this came, paul this comes up very clearly in the the recent hoo-ha that has been about priti patel being um uh, lobbied by conservative mps to 
pick up um, migrants who crossed the channel and then just dump them back uh, in France. Um, absolutely illegally and against uh, our UN prom United Nations code promises. Um, uh, so the, um, do, do you um, talk to us about the political um, game side of this? I, I talk, to, talk, talk to us about the politics going on in these issues. There's, there are a lot of like chicken and egg situations here. There's like what what came first? Did the hatred of um of refugees come first, or, or or was that driven by something else? Was that driven by like certain political figures in like whipping that up? Because one of the things that's very interesting if you if you have a look at the things that stop things like racism and stop hatred in communities, it's actually contact. Um, actually speaking to those real people and realizing they're just humans exactly the same as anyone else, and and you know, they, they, not every person who comes across comes into a country will be absolutely lovely, and not everyone will be absolutely horrible. They will have the absolute the whole spectrum of different types of human in there, and you'll you'll really get on with some, and you'll not with others, and that's they're just humans, you know. That's that's what it comes down to. Um, but they have like the idea of immigration. I think it topped the poll this week and things the Conservative Party were worried about, Conservative voters were worried about. It's immigration and you look at that like what I mentioned at the beginning is my moment of the week. That is so much more worrying than uh than any form of immigration. And and that really do you know, like, there's people as well, they talk about things like the free market. They talk about the free market. Well, in a free market, people would be allowed to move over borders in order to work wherever they wanted. But what they mean is a, a free market for capital so they can go where the cheap labour is because what they'll find is like, if people can move, then wages kind of come together and, and, and everyone's uplifted. It's a really... It's, I can't really go into it in detail here. We'll have to go into it in another show. It's just very, very interesting how the, how it's been politically manipulated to make it seem like these people who are coming over who they've never seen before are um are somehow the nasty ones, where the people who are making their lives bad are the government, are the people who are making these decisions that are take, like increasing the national insurance or you know not giving people access to houses. And some of the comments are really good. I had our first comment on Discord as well, which is really nice because I've just set that up. Like, um, and it's the same people who say this is from um, Leo twenty twenty one, who we know who it is, but I'll not uh, break cover on that one unless the, unless she wants us to. Um, it's the same people who say look after our own first, that walk past homeless people, and are happy to say our kids go hungry. That are now using this as an excuse to say we can't help refugees. And I think we've seen that, haven't we? We've seen the All Lives Matter brigade, All Lives Matter. But then when it comes to an Afghanistani refugee, they're like, well, that, well no, not them. And then uh, what we meant is that. Black people shouldn't should just shut up. That's what they meant by all lives matter, really. Some of them, and then um, and then homeless people. Oh, we we'll look after our own. Look after our own. But they're not interested in looking after our own. It's that selfish mentality, and it's been kicking around for a very long time. Some people have always been selfish, but there was an engendered like kind of selfish attitude that came across in the eighties with Reagan and Thatcher and look after yourself. 
And I think that's I've where it comes from. One last question for you, Paul, and, and it uh, arises from uh, a comment uh, by uh, Amelia Washbone when she says, um, we do have a small proportion of people shouting against the refugees. However, the media give them a voice. Do you think that this is a problem of portrayal and media uh, exposure um, as much as it's a problem of, of, of real racism and, um, uh, and, and problems like that? Okay, so it, again, looking at the media, um, you have you had these people when David Cameron became prime minister. You had all these people who politically were conservatives appointed at the BBC. So like George Osborne's brother-in-law was given a was given a really high um, was it his brother-in-law someone he was best man of for the wedding anyway something like that. They were all very much connected with one another and they've become over time they've become more and more conservative. And then when you saw like the Nigel Farage had his own seat. You know, he might as well have his name on the back of it on Question Time. These are niche views that become more prominent when they're given more airtime. And maybe they did that because it was entertaining. Or maybe, like, you know, because they got Nick Griffin on and he made a fool of himself, didn't he, for the BNP? Maybe they were trying to do that. Although I am told that there were a lot of people at the BBC very, very, very sympathetic with the anti-immigrant rhetoric and they wanted to push that. So, you know, there are no politically neutral journalists. What's the point of becoming a political journalist if you're neutral? Just admit it. Just say, like, you're right wing, like Andrew Neil does. At least he admits it. Or you say, like us, you're left wing. Or, you know, and that's the problem, isn't it? It's the, it's the pretense of neutrality. The BBC, at the moment, with all the people who've been politically appointed, are nowhere near neutral. And they can't even pretend to be neutral. And yet they say, oh, well, we'll have balance by having one climate change denier and one climate change scientist who's actually done the research. And he represents 99% or she represents 99% of the people. And this person represents 1% who's funded by far right think tanks. Thank you, Paul. Um, people commenting, fabulous comments. Um, some that um, Samantha's already sent, she's going to be picking up later. Um, uh, solutions people if you've got an idea for a solution ram it up there and um, we'll be able to look at it later um, I'm going to bring that to an end now thank you very much indeed and we move on And now we, we, we go on to what I laugh at called our three quick questions. Um, the, uh, I, I, remind, I remind the dream team, quick questions is the, is the word. Um, one of the things you wanted to talk about was our local MP, Paul Howell, uh, backing an HS2 East Line. Um, is he bonkers, Stuart? Oh, yeah, most definitely. I mean, I've had a read of the article. And there's the usual, you know, capacity. We need more of this. We need more of that. And at the end of the day, he's talking about what is, you know, will be a wildly overpriced uh, rail upgrade that's going to be ecologically damaging. But at the same time, we're going to have the same crappy old East Coast mainline 
that people can't afford to use. You know, we're still going to keep hold of all the, you know, Victorian railway up the East Coast that should have had the money spent on it, that the HS2 money needs to really be spent on to do something with, to, you know, give us the, the powerhouse of the North Railway. And then in the article, he goes on about, uh, you know, the, the economic benefits of a small station and how a, a sandwich shop would pop up and it just spirals. Well, you like New Naycliffe as a small station, doesn't it? Yeah. Has that, has that spiraled into a, a metropolis as yet? No. no. It, Ferry Hill, Ferry Hill, they're talking about the Lameside line, which would uh, provide a, you know, a really useful freight diver and a connection to Teesside. But it's not going to turn Ferry Hill uh, into a metropolis overnight without some real investment in uh, what, you know, proper community stuff. They don't have a proper bank, you know. If if a town doesn't have a bank, but you want a, a railway station, things are a bit mixed up. People want services they can use and afford, and HS two will just be something else that they can't afford to use. Thank you, Paul. Sam, I do know that children have been going mad um, about the lack of connection between uh, the. Um, railway station and the locomotion museum that's adjacent to it and the town centre and the fact that the town centre isn't benefiting in any way from the sort of not just the railway station but the adjacent um, attraction uh, which has a massive visitor um, numbers over the over the year. Um, I mean do you agree with um, uh, Mr Howell when he says that um, uh, that it's going to um, uh, create economic opportunities? Well, exactly. What we need to look at is how people get to the train station, not necessarily where the train station is. We've got a train station in Shildon, and like you say, it's it's the, totally the wrong end of the town. Um, and unfortunately, there's so it's so difficult to just add a little bit extra track on. It would be great if we could somehow marry up the heritage railway side and the mainline railway side and, and just run some track to to bring people closer to the town centre but just so much uh, work in, involved and Shildon of course is the place where anybody could just chuck a train uh, on the <laughs> on the line in 18 um let's say 1890 somebody might do that just chuck chuck a wagon on the on the line and, and just give people uh, rides that's the entrepreneurial side of early Shildon um so I understand that can't be done anymore. But yes, the future of, of, of rail travel also has to seriously look at how people get to a train station. You know, we don't have any fancy e-bikes or e-scooters in Shildon. Um, <laughs> we don't even, you know, have very good cycle infrastructure for normal push bikes. That would be a really good way to help um square that circle to get people to the train station have have trains that have appropriate storage for, for bikes that would be great uh, so that people can can get to that their house to the train station and from the train station to their place of work I think that would be slightly more transformative than than building um, a train line that doesn't actually come anywhere near us. 
So what you're saying is the same as Stuart, that we've got billions of pounds being spent on a new high-speed line here, and that billions of pounds will be far better spent sort of improving connectivity to and from the station um, and improving facilities um, on the existing network. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really easy, actually, to commute to London from Shildon um, because you just go over to Darlington, then you can go straight down. So that's not the problem. The problems elsewhere. Very much indeed. The, the problem is the expense. Um, so, the, um, uh, Paul, um, the um, uh, sort of one of the things that Mr. Howell said was that if we improve the rail system, we'll reduce car use. Surely you can't disagree with him on that. Not if the prices stay the same. The prices are absolutely ridiculous. So, like, you know, you could, like, we could become all of a sudden efficient at building things like China are, and we could, like, somehow build HS2 in a couple of years, but, like, most people are saying it's not even going to be built in most of the MPs' lifetimes, you know? So um, so it's going to take a really, really, really long time, and maybe if they open up Leamside or something like that, it might alleviate a little bit of pressure. But the prices are absolutely ridiculous because of the system we've got. You know, we're spending, like seven or eight times what other countries with a real public service railway are are doing and are spending. So, you know, that is not going to help ordinary people use more rail. It's not going to mean that they can't use more cars. To be honest, if you want a short-term solution, you're probably going to have to look at buses and getting a really, really good connected bus route and and um cats mentioned she thinks that it should be free at the point of use <laughs> actually economically that does make sense it does help people quite a lot if you had like free public transport but you know as long as uh, there are big rail rail franchises willing to make a lot of money out of the situation and we have this like capitalist system of socialism for the for the multinationals and uh, capitalism for everyone else then it's going to become unaffordable for the vast majority of people. Thank you. I'm going to switch now to the next question. I'm going to sort of, if you had any pearls of wisdom on HS2, Laura, I'm going to pass them because I do want to address this. Um, did you read the article in the, Rebe in the Guardian by Rebecca Solnit, um, uh, which deals with our first question? Is, it, is the text abortion law the beginning of the end for liberal democracy? I mean, um, I've never I read don't... anything as terrifying in my life. Um, really? And I'll put the link on Political Unmuted. It's a brilliant article. Um, sort of, I mean, is the Texas abortion law, tell us about the Texas abortion law and, 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 and answer the question, is it the beginning of the end for liberal democracy? Okay, so the Texas abortion law, um, to give it its proper name, it's called the Senate Senate Bill 8, and it's a law that's being passed in the state of Texas, signed into law by a Republican governor whose name was Greg Abbott, um, brings about an almost total ban on abortions in, in Texas. Um, it states that it'll be illegal to abort any fetus that can have an embryonic cardiac activity. Um, and because of that, people have been calling it the heartbeat bill. 
And I think that has been a clear tactic to emotionalize it. Um, even though cardiac activity can be detected at around six weeks, the heart isn't fully formed yet. Um, so, um, so you can see what they're doing. <laughs> Surely everyone can see what, what's happening with this. Um, it's one of the most extreme reproductive laws that's been passed. There's been about 11 or 12 other states that have tried to pass laws like this. And all of them have been voted down um, quite easily. The difference with this one is that um, this law is incentivizing the general public to become vigilantes on this and sue anyone who is aiding and abetting the abortions. Um, so by doing that, it, it sort of protects the government officials from any wrongdoing because or any legal challenge because it's not them who's enforcing it. It'd be a civil lawsuit. Um, the arguments are the same you know, pearls of wisdom um, linked with pro-life. There are a lot of people linking abortion with promiscuity. Um, I'd suggest that people who are pro-life maybe want to take into consideration um, the lives of the women who are being put in danger by carrying a, a pregnancy to term, um, you know, medical danger, um, the lives of um, rape survivors who have to, carry their attacker's child to full term and then or <laughs> another thing that comes with that is that the um the attacker could sue her and the abortion clinic if she did get one and also if she does carry it to term that attacker then has rights over her child um or you know consider the lives of the children who will become mothers because they're not allowed to have this um also, the bill won't stop abortions happening. It just makes them really difficult to get and makes them really, really dangerous and really less safe because people will do, you know, the old tricks that they used to do in the Victorian times when women weren't allowed to have body autonomy back then as well. Um, I think women will need to travel at least 248 miles to get to another state um, where they will be allowed to have an abortion. The whole thing is wholly discriminatory. It's sexist. Even the UN have said this is a sexist bill. It really undermines any woman's movement. And as such, in answer to the question, it really just massively sets us back. Um, it's disgusting. It's horrible. And um, I don't know if it's the beginning of the end for liberal democracy. I feel like the beginning started a while back. I feel like it is a big signpost to um, to us getting closer to the end of it if we don't stop this ridiculous nonsense. I mean, I think that was the the key to the Solnit article that this is sort of uh, the um, sharp end of a whole suite of um, uh, activity designed to destroy. Uh, democracy um, because so many people actually want these uh, rights um, that the only way that the right can stop them getting these rights is by destroying democracy and she links it to the march on the senate that trump inspired and and, and all the other things um sam um i mean the uh in texas roe versus wade Actually, that the Supreme Court asserted, even in Texas, the right of a woman to have an abortion. And that was 1973. So why hasn't the Supreme Court reasserted itself over Texas now and, 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 and basically overturned this law? 
why, why are the Texas courts being, and it's coming to, into effect, why are they allowed to actually enact it? I wish I had the answer. I'm not an, uh, an expert in how America runs and how they make their laws, um, but they obviously have this system of different states having different laws. And I'm just really shocked. Like a week ago, people were saying, wow, what's happened in Afghanistan is terrible, isn't it? It's, it's just like the handmaid's tale. And now people aren't saying, but should be saying, Jesus, like America is becoming Gilead. What the actual hell is going on? We've got like religious extremists making law in America. And I know that America's always been, you know, pretty right wing, overall leaning. And there were certain laws you were always going to have to accept that weren't going to come into place. But like you say, Roe v. Wade was in the 70s and we're now in 20. 21 and the the saying is that you don't ban abortion you only ban safe abortion but i'd go further than that is that you only ban safe abortion for poor people because daughters of rich men are not going to have to suffer through holding on to uh, a baby that has been caused through rape uh, it's just they will find ways around it and it'll be all right sweetheart it's just it's absolutely i'm really glad to see um people in the comments saying that their their stomachs are turning they absolutely should be a lot of women won't even know they're pregnant at six weeks jesus i haven't had a period in about 10 years because I keep having babies and breastfeeding and then being on weird <laughs> bits of birth control and occasionally I have a bit of a funny turn and I think oh am I pregnant I have no idea <laughs> and um, I just think it's just so so archaic abortion is health care what we're saying is we are we are condemning women and the men who have to live with them and alongside them to a huge gap in their healthcare, and yes, it will disproportionately affect, affect black women, it will disproportionately affect poor women, and it will disproportionately affect anybody with any other mental health conditions or anything else, and it's just sick, and I can't believe it's happening in a supposed Western country. Thank you very much. I'm sorry to cut you off on that. Um, Stuart, I mean, people are saying on the, uh, the chat, and, and it's a big issue sort of in the debate, that this is a law which penalises and endangers women and not the men who were involved in the initial act. I mean, sort of, uh, what, what do we do about that? How, how, how do we confront this issue? I mean, I mean, clearly it's a, an attack on women's rights and, you know, the power over their own bodies. But I think there's there's more of a there's also an economic angle here, because if you want to maintain a low wage, uh, ethnically American, I'll, I'll use that term quite loosely, uh, uh, state, what you need to do is have control over who's being born. And one of the ways to make sure that there's more people than jobs is to take away the right to have an abortion. You know, this is there's an economic thing going on here, where this is uh, pushing that state into a, a you know a low wage, uh, low immigration state, and that's probably one of the reasons why this law has been pushed so heavily. 
and you know the the women are just the the worst losers in this you know awful mess you know men are also losing it. um the the sort of most people would say it was a religious imperative that was had created the, the you're, you're saying that there's a, an economic motive i think there is an economic motive to it if you want if you want you know an eth- ethnically american state with low wages and low immigration the best way to achieve that is to have control over women's bodies that is just frightening stuart um finally paul I want to move on to the the last question, if it's possible. Have you anything burning to say about the um, uh, about uh, any new angle to share about the um, Texas abortion law before I, I move on? Yeah, just just really quickly. Um, like it's almost I hate the way this is always presented because if a woman has an abortion, it's still a traumatic event for that woman. Like for whatever reason, that woman needs to have an abortion. Um, what an awful position for those people to be put into when already they, they, there, there is no, you know, this is not a shiny, happy topic. And I was glad that Samantha was able to make it a little bit lighter by cracking a little joke in there because this has been quite dark, hasn't it? You know, the whole the whole thing. But on, on democracy, um, we don't have a democracy and the US don't have a democracy. They've got an elected aristocracy. So the electing aristocracy and that aristocracy can then be influenced by pressure groups. And that is what's going on. Like they're only like interested in the public every few years. But like if you get like someone who's a massive pressure group or someone with a lot of money, and if your state, you're funded by someone who is ultra right wing or ultra orthodox or something like that, you're going to have to go with them because that's where the funding is. It's an elected aristocracy. It isn't a proper democracy. And, uh, we fundamentally need to change that. And I think we need to go and we need to go and change that. People need to go and change that because otherwise this is just getting worse. Thank you, Paul. Um, one of the, the, the points that I think is always well made uh, is that whilst the child is in the womb, the right-wing people are so um, fierce in their defence of that child, of how important it is. And as soon as it's born, of course, to a mother who can't cope in a poor neighbourhood and and sort of, and is looking to sort of the government for support, it's, um, you know, just a, a thief and a shirker and, and, and sort of all that's awful. And, and, and there's no consistency um, in terms of care for the individual. Um, the last one... Um, uh, was actually somebody who lives in France asked me what I thought about this and then went on and on and on about it until I put it on the poll and it, and it came from there's a local school in County Durham that's put um, CCTV in the toilets now I'm not talking about in the cubicles they're not watching children go to the toilet okay but what they are doing is they're watching the the, the communal areas um, and they've actually taken out the boys' urinals and replaced them with cubicles. So all both ma- male and female toilets now have cubicles. Um, but the communal area where you wash your hands and go in and come out um, are now being put, uh, watched by CCTV. And the school is saying um, that um, this is because those areas are uh, uh, sites of unsavoury behaviour and particularly of bullying. 
and sort of they're not being watched all the time. Um, they're just there to look back on if there is an incident. Uh, sort of, but there's all hell on in the newspaper, most and with with most of the comments, um, sort of calling the school all kinds of names. Paul, your question: Do you want CCTV in school toilets? Be careful how you answer, Paul. Of course I don't, but it's really, really silly. But this is just one of those things where what terrible, terrible PR, like right into the bedrooms. We're going to put cameras in the toilets. What you should, what they should have said is, we are putting cameras in the wash basin area outside the toilets. That's what they should have said. Instead, they've like they've caused this big panic over something that. People might not want the, the children to be filmed in that particular area, but it sounds... Like, saying in the toilets, obviously it conjures up a certain image. But if they have a if they have a bullying issue in, the, in those toilets, isn't it interesting that they think putting in cameras will solve that? Because there'll always be a place where children will go where they aren't on camera. And they won't do that. Do you know what the most effective way of dealing with... Um, with bullying is to not cause it with authoritarian systems. There is a direct <laughs> correlation between authoritarianism and the way people behave and bullying. You get a lot of bullying in private schools when they're all regimented. And this is what they've found throughout the world. Wherever you've got really authoritarian regimes where there's very little freedom, prisons, very, very strict schools, you get a lot of bullying. So why not why not look at the real causes of bullying and maybe think actually maybe maybe the whole system and I'm not saying this school because I I think there's a lot of people who think very highly of Framlingham School and I'm not going to criticise that individual school that would be very unfair I'm talking about the whole school system in which we are incredibly authoritarian in the fact that we like you know teachers on the on an individual basis aren't like that but the system in which they have to do this subject and they have to hit these certain times and they have to go and do exams and what for no one knows what for no one knows what the exams are for no one knows what they're useful for anymore it's just a total mess so maybe they should be doing something entirely different to stop bullying rather than put up some cameras and then say they're in the toilets because that's just weird Thank you, Paul. Um, we'd have to a minute each, people. Um, Laurie, you're a mother. Would you send your children to a school that was um, CCTVing the the hand basin area? Yes, I don't. I, 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 I'm with Paul on this one. I think it is bad messaging. Like as lot, also by law they can't have somebody just sitting watching it. It all it is is it's just being recorded, and then if it's not needed. It is disposed of. Nobody sits and watches it or even looks at it unless there's an incident. Um, and if there was an incident, if, you know, one of my kids got attacked, I'd want to know who it was. <laughs> um, but yeah, like Paul said, it's 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 bad messaging. And, and maybe we should be looking at the root causes of bullying and, and know that it happens in schools. I know what kids are like. But I don't necessarily think having cameras in, in communal areas is a bad thing. If they were in the toilets, I'd definitely have a different opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, um, uh, would you send your children to this school if you knew that the communal areas of the toilets were being CCTV'd? 
Well, I, I may very well be not that particular school, but uh, close to us, Bishop Barrington School are having a, a rebuild of, of their toilet area. And they're doing a very similar thing where actually the only private area in the toilets is the actual toilet cubicles and that the hand basin area is part of the uh, corridor. So it's totally open and public to people who are walking past. Um, you know, this is potentially a really good thing for young people who um, don't necessarily want to choose the boys or the girls toilets as they're discovering that part of their identity in their life. Um, I do think there's a bit of a dog whistle here about girls toilets, there's going to be cameras in the girls toilets because men are all rapists and they're all going to get you, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think, you know, we have to, there is a lot of hysteria. I rolled my eyes when I read the news article because and 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 Mia made a really good point um, that it's potentially damaging young people if they are then afraid of going to the toilet and then not going to go to the toilet. But I would say the people who are making that fear are the, the press and they need to be a little bit more responsible about how they report school toilets. I think it's the other way around, Sam, quite frankly. Um, as a former teacher, I knew of... Um, large numbers of children who were making themselves ill and wetting themselves on the way home because they wouldn't go in the toilets as they were. They didn't go in the toilets and they tried to hold all day and, and, and sort of it led to all kinds of problems. And, and I think um, uh, Bishop Barrington's solution sounds uh, a great idea and actually probably better than the family get more solution. Um, uh, Stuart, do you think that the issue is um, less privacy and more security of data here? I think so. Uh, you know, everything needs to be evidence-based when you come up with these policies and these ideas. It'd be interesting to see what evidence the school had used uh, before coming up with this. You know, all I can imagine that's really going to happen is you're going to have a line of kids waiting to wash their hands while some other kids play up to the camera in hopes that one day somebody's going to watch it and see them stick two fingers up at the teachers. <laughs> oh, what a negative view of children you have. <laughs> Probably true. Um, I think there was one of the comments on the Northern Echo article which, which sort of said um, uh, along the lines that we're worrying about CCTV uh, we need to worry much more about the fact that there are children who actually spend much of their lives in these toilets, sort of, and, and sort of shove loo rolls down the toilet and smear poo up the walls and then eat their sandwiches in there. And it's sort of, it's all part of a wider education. Um, I think, um, I think that Paul's right. It's uh, part of, uh, it's a very extreme uh, sledgehammer attempt to and address a very old and uh, very old problem. Um, I'm going to bring things to an end. We're two minutes over. Um, my wonderful team have just talked that two minutes too long. What a surprise. And thank you so much, Dream Team. Um, and listeners, you'll know what happens now. Uh, we play no pass around. We all sort of wander off and get ourselves another cup of coffee. And then we arrive back. And the wonderful Samantha 
takes over the second half of the show. Remember, she's starting with a question from Mia Mantri, and um, sort of that, I think, and we'll, we'll hear what the question is, and, and then uh, sort of, but Samantha will take charge of that part of the show, and I know that there are just some fantastic things that you've been saying that she will want to... Um, uh, lost the way. Um, <laughs> look at, look at uh, in a retrospective manner. Okay, thank you very much indeed. And um, if you're going to go now, goodbye. See you next week. Otherwise, see you in five minutes. Hello, we are back for our second half, and we have a guest. We've got Mia here. Uh, Hi. People. Uh, hello Mia people who have seen the show long term viewers will have met Mia before she's absolutely fantastic and she's got great insight into a lot of topics and we're always interested to hear questions from Mia so I hear that Mia ha, hear Mia god there's a whole wor world of wordplay going on in there isn't there I we am interested in hearing the question that Mia has for us tonight go ahead uh, yeah thanks is telling someone not to kill themselves because of what their death will do to others really the best form of suicide prevention? And more to the point, do suicidal people not deserve more than to be told <clears throat> to be told that is the main reason they should live? That is deep. Um... Has anybody got any particular opinions on this to want to start us off? I don't mind going just because Go ahead, Paul. no one else was. Um, I think it's a really, really good point raised. It certainly shouldn't be the only thing people say because that just piles more pressure on the person who's feeling terrible. Oh, you feel terrible, do you? Well, here, let's see if we can take it up a notch. Imagine, like you know, it, it's a really, it, it's a, it probably comes from a place of like, you know, you've got plenty, like a bit, much better way of wording it would be there's plenty to live for, there's plenty of people who love you. That would be the better way of saying something similar. But yeah, I think people do go down that route and I do think it adds more pressure onto people. Um, and if people are in that kind of, in, in that feeling in that way then what they must be offered is support and care and love rather than more pressure um it's a really really difficult thing and we need to i think we need to become more caring as a society and you know again it's like it's about saying other people have responsibility like you have responsibilities towards other people rather than the idea that you matter and I don't think people yeah. who've said that will be being nasty, and and a lot of people will have said will have said those words. But I think we need to be more conscious of the of the damage that our words can do without even thinking about it or trying. I guess I hope I've come mm. across okay there because it's really really difficult. Yeah, I think a lot of things are said with the best intentions, but they can be quite damaging. Uh, when we look at. Uh, 
women, for example, there's that saying that goes around, you know, would you like it if she was your daughter or your wife and somebody was treating her that way? And it just has the result of objectifying the person that you're supposedly trying to help, doesn't it? So I think it's a similar type of angle where it may come from a good place, but that doesn't mean it's positive or, or productive. Um, you know, I, I'm in the sad position that um, suicide affects my family quite a lot. It's it's um, unfortunately a lot of my uncles have have, have died by suicide, um, and you know they were going through what they were going through at that time, and to make it about you as their family, it is really missing the mark. I think you know. Um, it, it, it's a real, really hard subject. I just want to take the point to, to, to just say, you know, if anybody is having those dark thoughts at the moment, watching this programme, do reach out to Samaritans. I know it's not always possible. I know that when you're in that dark place, reaching out, out isn't always what you can do. And, and to that end, if you have a, a friend who has gone quiet, or is, is acting slightly differently, make sure you reach out too, because sometimes we're in that dark place, you don't have any energy to reach out. Um, Stuart, I'm not going to let you be quiet. <laughs> Ooh, uh. See, th- this is like a really tough one, because as a society, we're not really prepared for this kind of stuff, are we? You know, we don't go to school and get mental health first aid. And you're not really given a toolkit to go on and and help people through this really rough situation. You know, the best that we're normally given is here's a list of phone numbers to sign for somebody to. And in those situations, you don't want to promise to somebody that, you know, everything's going to be all right. You know, the the world's going to, we're going to fix this. You You can't make those really broad promises because that's completely out of your hands and there's no, there's absolutely no right answers other than trying to give a shit. And, you know, because deep down, you know that if that person takes their own life, the world is a little bit less and we need to start expressing this to people long before they get into this situation, you know, where they want to take their own life. We need to be expressing to people, that they have value and they're important long before we ever get to the edge of a, a bridge or, and, or, you know, looking at a packet of pills. Yeah. John? Um, there was a really interesting uh, thing on Vigil this Sunday where, I know it was just sorry, but... Um, when the, the chappy was threatening to take his own life, the way she intervened there was by saying, I know you don't, I know you can't see that now, but there are little glimmers of light for the future. And 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 did not um, even begin to say how much we would miss him and, 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 and sort of, um, if you go to Samaritans, they will not try and persuade and dissuade you at all. They'll just listen to you and let you um, let you tell them 
your situation and, and, and talk to you about that situation. Um, uh, it's mainly about listening, as I understand it. Um, I think one of the big problems here is that um, suicide is not just an area we don't discuss, but we, we're frightened as a society to talk about it. It's a big no-go area. Um, I mean, I, had, I went to visit some friends on Sunday and spent most of the time talking about voluntary euthanasia. And, 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 and so that's, you can talk about that, you know, the, but sort of you don't talk about suicide. And, and, and there's so many rules you get sort of, oh, you, you know, you don't call it a suicide. We mustn't use that word. It is, and, and, uh, and, and it was scared to talk about it for fear of saying the right thing. But the result of that is that really none of us would have a clue if we met face to face somebody who was threatening to take their own life. We wouldn't have a clue what to say, how to go about it. It's a real gap in our education as a society. We, if, if we were having a heart attack, we'd all be there singing, staying alive, staying alive, um, sort of. Um, we, we, we all know what to do in terms of, or, or if the um, uh, sort of cut an artery, we'd all be there with the belt and the tourniquet and, and said, twist that, keep the pressure, keep the pressure on. We all have these kind of um, sort of folk things that we know what to do about physical um, things, but um, uh, it, it's a really very difficult, sensitive area. People are frightened of it, and there's a, a fright of saying the wrong thing. And, and as a result, um, sometimes they just blurt out. And, and, and I think, Mia, when somebody says to somebody who they know is thinking of suicide, you can't go, you can't leave us. You sort of, what they're really doing is what Paul was saying. They're talking about how precious that person is to them. Um, and um, they're not talking, they're not wanting to put guilt onto people, but it's just coming out all wrong, all wrong. Think about your children, think it's sort of, and, and uh, maybe, maybe education. Is is the answer? It is just such a huge uh, issue, and um, uh, the newspapers don't help either. Is there anything in general you'd like to add, Laura? Um. Yeah. So I think the people who say things like "you can't go because." I'll miss you or your family will miss you or you can't do it to us. Um, those people are not, clearly not trained mental health professionals. And so I don't think it is fair for us to say that what they're saying is wrong. It's coming out all wrong. It's coming out with empathy and, you know, care. Um, it might not help, but if it's somebody who is so close to taking their own life, that might be the thing that stops them. You know, that might be that bit of guilt might be the thing that goes, oh, I better not then. You know, at that point, anything to stop them until you can get them off the edge and talk them down and try and get proper help for those people. I think ultimately, you know, what um, Paul and Stuart were saying is absolutely right. There needs to be 
much more robust mental health services. There needs to be no stigma around mental health so that we get less and less people to this point. We need to be have a system where if you're struggling or you're overwhelmed, you can go and talk to someone, you can go and get some help and get some support. We should have better, you know, just better lives in general so that we don't have have to live in a world where everything's just pressure and they're pushing us towards the edge all the time. Um, more acceptance, more empathy. That, that's, these are all societal changes that need to happen before, you know, before we can start demonising people for maybe saying the wrong thing when they're just trying to help. Um, obviously saying you can't go because, you know, other people will be upset is not ideal and it's not the perfect response and it's certainly not I'm sure a medical professional's view on what you should say but um, I think you can't expect everybody to know all the right things to say at all the right times all you can do is work on your knowledge of that person and your care for that person and hope that your care comes across um, and whatever it takes to stop it happening at that time. Thanks, Laura. There are some great comments. Please read them because I will I will cover some, but um, I, I won't be able to catch all of them. Um, Neil bring, mentions something that is actually life saving and, and really important to mention, which is that you, you know you can't be afraid to ask somebody are they considering suicide because that is opening up a conversation which needs to happen. If they say no, they say no. But if they say yes, you can then try and get some help in place and you can give them space to talk. It's really important. We don't do it enough in our society. Um, and talking about suicide prevents suicide. It's really important to know that and to action that in, in any forum um, that is available to you. It is taboo to talk about this, but it is real. And, and it is, unfortunately... Um, you know, destroying, destroying communities. In, in my community alone, we've had um, three young people take their own lives. And we are scarred. And I'm not saying that uh, our feelings are more important. And I'm not saying that um, we, those young people should have thought about us before they did that. But it doesn't change the fact that our community is heartbroken and will be forever because we'll always remember this 17-year-old girl and the 21-year-old boy who, who who unfortunately ended their own life. Um, and and Laura's absolutely right. We have to look at society in this, um, we, especially for children with special educational needs and disabilities, especially for children with emotional issues caused by their early childhood. The education system's actually quite traumatic for them that there is not help available when children and young people need help um, and a lot of children and young people uh, are left struggling without basic educational interventions because schools can't afford the teaching assistance schools can't afford the up-to-date training or on things like autism um, autism spectrum disorders or ADHD or mental health in young people. My children's school has actually had to buy in mental health support 
for our children because they recognize that the the state of the mental health of our young people is stopping them from achieving academically that, again what what year are we in this is 2021 and 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 it's terrible go on then paul um sorry i was just, uh, just as you were talking about the societal issues if anthropologically there's not very much evidence of hunter gatherers committing suicide and even in hunter-gatherer tribes that are active now, that still behave as hunter-gatherer tribes, which is very difficult to find out anything about them because once you start making contact, they stop being the hunter-gatherer tribes. But there's very little evidence of them doing that. But there is huge evidence of very recently um, civilised um, hunter-gatherer tribes. So the Inuits, huge, huge suicide rate. Um Native Americans, huge uh, Australian Aborigines, huge suicide rate. Now, this tells me that this is something that society is doing to people. And also, when you said about like autistic spectrum disorder, disorder, isn't that what what a judgmental term that is? Like, do you think people who um, are on the autistic spectrum would have? Uh, would have been considered to be disordered in a certain, like, in hunter-gatherer tribes and, and would, you know, like, the, the Native Americans had a complete understanding of different genders and, and um, they used to have multiple genders and, and third, well, a third gendered in there where they said it was neither man nor woman and things like that. They had much more enlightened views than our society mm. keeps on telling people. And this really worries me. Like, what are we doing to drive this? Yeah, uh, and just as a, as a point of information, um, so some people prefer the term autistic spectrum conditions. Um, autistic spectrum disorder is the textbook name mm -hmm. for yeah. the, the variety. Of, um, and also in terms of terminology, um, it's it, we. People generally prefer to say um, died by suicide rather than committed suicide mm. because committed suicide throws back to when it was illegal to uh, end your own life and, and, and lots of other things. And it also implies that it's something that you have done to yourself when ultimately the conditions that cause somebody to end their life, you know, it's an illness, it's mental illness. And, um, but what John said earlier about... Um, Voluntary euthanasia is an interesting point, and this is this is me as a philosopher. Um, you know, at, at what point does does some somebody's desire to, to end their own life become a euthanasia? You know, um, is there a point where uh, you know my body, my choice? Does that extend to ending your life? I guess it probably does. Um, but it's it's a really complicated and deep deep conversation which I probably should not oh completed suicide Neil tells me um is is um another preferable term um and yes lots of great comments on that um I absolutely thank you for reminding me of what was said uh, at the training session I went to um where we were told um 
that absolutely correctly um, that um, committed suicide is the wrong word. Committed is just the wrong word to use um, and, and does go back to um, uh, the, um, the time when it was a crime. Have you sort of, um, maybe you went on the same training session as I did, but what, what struck me very strongly about that was that um, everybody nodded meaningfully and said, oh, yes, dreadful to say um, committed suicide. What a dreadful thing to say. Um, and then merrily proceeded to, um, with, uh, you know, use the term sort of um, uh, throughout the rest of the session, including the trainer who told us that we shouldn't say this. And, and it <laughs> that. This is one of the, it's what goes back to what I was saying, that this is one of those topics where if you're not careful, the um, fear you have of saying the wrong thing is so huge that actually you end up not properly addressing it, running away from it and not talking about the issues and, and sort of, and consequently, uh, we, we don't talk about it for fear of saying the wrong thing. Um, and consequently, we don't know enough about it. And I openly and freely um, admit that I just do not know enough about this subject to be spouting off on, um, uh, on a discussion programme, I think. And if I would want a point to be made, it's that um, sort of so many of us know so little about what we're talking about um, that we need to know more. Um, I just thank me for bringing this up because um, of course it, I think it, it, we're either we're near suicide awareness week and um, sort of uh, and so if there's a message that's come coming out of this discussion I would want to see um, it's that uh, our suicide awareness of all of us um, to be expanded we need more suicide awareness um, and and thank you me for bringing this up a massively important issue. Is there anything you'd like to say, Mia, in uh, response to anything that's been said or to sum anything up yourself? Yeah, I think that um, a lot of it is that nobody wants to sort of look at why somebody's suicidal. And I think also they don't, um, I think they seem to think of it, uh, they go along the lines of the medical model, which suggests that it's something wrong with the person. And I think often it's um, it's sort of a societal issue and to do with um, with the way that um, that society is with people. And I know with me, I was suicidal for a very long time. And what changed it was sort of my change in social circles. Because for years I used to try to speak about things that I was affected by. And a lot of people would shut me down. And that is really what, what affected my mental health. And my question comes from like um, having, having that said to me. And I think what I used to feel, I think a lot of people used to want me to, to sort of, um, to change like things about me. Um, and it felt like, I think it used to feel that people weren't um, weren't so much interested in saving the real me as much as saving the person they thought 
I should become. So I think it's more about valuing people as they are, as opposed to um, to sort of trying to change people. Thanks, Mia. That's really powerful. Go on, John. I think we need to be careful um, also about the families um, of those who have taken their own life. Uh, yeah. Talked about it's all about valuing people, and 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 sort of um, we need to be aware of the the the, the feelings of people who have lost um, a close loved one um, who has taken their own life. Mm. Um, it wasn't because you didn't value that loved one enough. That wasn't the reason. It yeah. wasn't your fault. Uh, if somebody close to you has died uh, for taking their own life, that was that wasn't because you didn't love them enough. Um, uh, sort of, there's so many issues involved, and and sort of, uh, Sam's absolutely right. When somebody takes their own life the effect upon the family, upon those who are close to them, their friends. Um, sort of, uh, we told that uh, copycat suicides don't exist, but nevertheless, you do get sort of whole groups of friends who sometimes years apart will, will also take their, their own lives. The effect upon the friends is traumatic. And, and Sam's right. The effect upon the community, they never get over it. And and, and it's a, a, I think it's just a sign that what people have been saying on the, the comment, we need to do much more as a society about this. We need to understand it much, much better. And uh, sort of, um, and it couldn't, a bit of money needs to throw in after this as well. Another addition, uh, I'm just throwing a website link in the comments on Facebook, um, and this is Quinn's Retreat, who offer respite for families who have been affected by suicide. Um, this is the, the siblings I was telling you about earlier, where their 17-year-old daughter died, and then later on, his their 21-year-old son ended his own life, and, and he was just haunted by his sister's uh, the way that she died, unfortunately, um, there were questions over whether she could have been saved if she'd received the right medical attention at the time. Um, the family ended up taking the Northeast Ambulance Service to court over it. it was, um, uh, actually, it wasn't court, it was part of the tribunal, I think. Anyway, the point is, uh, you're absolutely right, you know, uh, suicide destroys destroys families, runs through communities like like an electric bolt but we must remember like Mia said we can't just keep pushing these things back on the the person who is the victim who is who is suffering and look at what we can change about their surroundings in order to um, improve their position overall so thanks really very much for yeah, for, uh, I, yeah. I will admit that I I was coming from from the point of view of the person very much. Um, but I think a lot of the, and I think it's not just with this, but in a, in a lot of other areas as well, there tends to be this like in society, there tends to be this thinking about how it's, it's almost like um, it's about f helping um, one group versus another. And actually we need to help all, all sort of, it shouldn't be about whether we, 
whether we support the the sort of people like the people who are suicidal or the the families we need to be supporting all of them maybe offer offer different like individual separate support if that's what's needed um like so so that people who who are in a difficult place who are suicidal get the support they need but so do the do the families as well mm. it's like there should be there should be support for everyone involved yeah fantastic Right, not to shove that really important subject to another side, but I do want to go through some of the other really great comments we had during the show. Um, Mark made a really good point early on. He said, uh, how do we stop the fear of people from foreign cultures and how is it related to how we behave during the British Empire? Um, what a lot of people don't get is that uh, as Mark carried on, we destroyed other cultures when we took them over as a colonial power. Um, and maybe people are worried that we're gonna that they're gonna do the same to us. But actually, the reason they're coming over here is because of the colonialism, because we forced our culture on them, so that they think we are the the, the place to come to, perhaps, and because we've got a shared language, perhaps. Uh, cat points out the bigotry is all about the machinery of othering and it because the same thing happens with women's bodies and women uh, and we were saying but before about the texas abortion law you know well it's easy to say that it's all right about these women who can't get abortions because they're all sluts anyway right um but actually a lot of women have abortions <laughs> like it's a really normal thing to happen <laughs> um we we covered the whole the whole thing about you know people who say to look after our first our own first won't bother to help our own i don't see them campaigning against the universal credit cut i don't see them volunteering at the local food bank it's very convenient um you cover the thing about public transport should be free at point of use we had that there was a really good conversation about whether it is better for people to work remotely than to get the train to work if you can scroll back and read that it's a really really good comment thread uh can't rightly point out that sustainability includes looking after our own people's mental health and their well-being too and for some people that does include staying at, uh, going to work um and margaret margaret bondfield if that is your real name she's not a real <laughs> uh she's incognito um she says while we live in a world where men make decisions about women's bodies we will never be equal this is really profound and you could have that in calligraphy on your wall couldn't you that could does anybody want to say anything about any of those things going on there is it laura <laughs> anybody want to add anything to that raft of comments i've just spewed out good comments Good comments. <laughs> yeah, good comments. Always, I mean, yes. we really deconstructed colonialism and, and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> hey, we this are is really a, an important issue, and we ought to discuss it on the show once uh, one time. And I'll be really pleased 
to uh, have a show. Um, I'm, I'll put it down as a question um, and see if we can get it on the, the show uh, next week where you have time to think about it and then comment. Um, there's this um, real historical debate about how um, good the British Empire was. Uh, was it a force for good or a force for evil? It's a genuine historical debate and there are um, points to be made on both sides about it. Um, but what, of course, when this comes into the political arena, you've got this kind of thing whereby um, the right wing uh, simply want to glorify Britain's past um, as a great nation, um, uh, as, as some kind of actual way to browbeat um, the population in, into a, a form of loyalty and nationalism. And um, uh, so you've got this very kind of nationalistic way of looking at it. And yet you've got this on the other side, you've got people who um, are um, absolutely concerned to vilify Britain's past and the things like the slave trade and the, the concentration camps. And they draw out all these aspects of Britain's past, which are very, very negative um, and particularly the damage that colonial, sort of very often the people who went there thought they were doing the country good. Uh, the damage they did to those countries um, uh, was absolutely monumental. And um, uh, so the, uh, it's um, uh, sort of how we view our own past uh, has, is, is no longer just a historical um, uh, debate. It's absolutely central to your politics and to um, how we not only see ourselves, but how we progress into the future as a nation. Absolutely uh, vital that we, we, we consider this. And um, uh, so well done. Was it Neil Terry that was bringing it? Mark Lungley. Well done, Mark Lungley, for bringing this issue up. Absolutely central. Our past determines um, our present and how we try to move into the future. We had a funny conversation at work. We have to, we have to, um, one of my teaching standards is uphold British values. And I've got to uphold British values. And we all, I took the thing. So I went to see my line manager and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure how to do this. I said, what are British values? And he was like, I don't know. And then we started <laughs> talking about what British values were. And someone was like, is it invading countries for oil? And things like that, you know, it's like maybe maybe that's a British value, you know. It's 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 really really bizarre that we have to uphold British values, and none of us quite know what they are. And it's like, you know, it's like, oh, is it is it anti-fascism? Because in the build-up of the war, they were pretty pro-fascist in a lot of respects, and certainly the the British mainstream press were, the Daily Mail were. They all loved the fascists, didn't they? So, you know, and now if you're anti-fascist, you, you're meant to be a threat, aren't you? So, um, interesting times, but no one seems to know what that is. So if anyone does know what British values are, then uh, do that. It's me, Phil, my performance it's, management. Uh, eh? It's singing that One Nation song, isn't it? The... Ugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is it One Nation <laughs> I can't even remember. It was such a good song. I can't remember any of it. <laughs> I've just remembered it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I wouldn't, I'm not going to drag on. Uh, just, an, uh, just a thought for you all. 
to uh, think about between now and next Tuesday at nine o'clock when you will come and see us again. Uh, Amelia said, how can we, or how can women, how can we, how can all of us fight for women's rights in the way that they are being attacked in America and even in Afghanistan? I think that's a really powerful question. If there is anything we can do, uh, we've got plenty of time for you to go back Get that done as your homework. Find out how we can turn this tide, which is coming for women globally, and it'll come for you next. Uh, and if you can come back next Tuesday with an answer, we'd be really grateful. <laughs> oh, actually, can I just quickly jump in there? Yeah. Just um, a heads up, our Socialist Night Live on Saturday night at nine o'clock will be focused on women's rights. Um I've got some incredible guests. I will, once I've made the poster, I'll share it. <laughs> I'm really excited. It's going to be an awesome show. So, Sneak, yeah, any, do, do any sneaky previews? No, 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 no. People have to wait. I'm, I'm waiting for me last guest to confirm, but I've got two awesome ones and people will know who they are. So. People who don't listen to the podcast. So people who listen to the podcast might not see the poster. Well, they'll have to listen to the Saturday podcast then, won't they? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, by the way, just before we all get to wrap ourselves up in a it's not our problem blanket, don't forget that years ago it became normal for women to have to talk to benefits advisors about whether they'd been raped or not in order to qualify for benefits. That's still true. It's still happening. It's still inhumane and it's still a jolly good woman-hating policy. So, you know, we can fight that here by voting against the party that put it in place. Absolutely. The rape clause, absolutely barbaric. Anyway, on that note um, I will let you go thank you very much for coming we are on Socialist Think Tank Political Unmuted every Tuesday at 9 o'clock and we are also on Facebook I'm going to say Instagram not Instagram we're on Facebook we are on Instagram we, we are don't on Instagram. Go live on Instagram but we are on Instagram good lord we are on Instagram <laughs> Twitter Twitch Yes, Twitch, uh, and on uh, wherever you get your podcasts, if you search for Socialist Think Tank, you will find all of the podcasts, and it's definitely um, enough for you to listen to while you're knitting or driving or whatever you do when you listen to podcasts. So oh, please... Do we have a, do we, sorry to interrupt you. Do, do we have um, a guest... A guest guest, a guest um, panel member next Tuesday. Is that confirmed, Paul? Yeah, Neil's coming on, Neil Terry. Neil Terry. Yay, Neil. This is a dreadful question to ask. It's his first time, isn't it? Yeah, the show. sure, yeah. yeah. So exciting, Neil. So you've got a whole week now to get nervous about it. Um, <laughs> the, um, sort of... Um, and, and watch out for these four. They're 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 oh they're really cruel to new people on on on, on the. <laughs> but the host is absolutely lovely to you, so you don't need to. Know. We're really looking forward to it, Neil. Um, and yeah. if anybody else ever wants to come on, despite what John says, ignore John. <laughs> we are lovely people, and we will help you through it. And we, you know, um, it's really important for people on the left to 
exercise this and practice speaking uh, in public and this is a, a lovely warm way to start and and work out how to make those thoughts go around in your head come out in a coherent sentence that comes out of your mouth uh, it doesn't happen by magic it does take practice and we need to upskill ourselves for the the fights that are coming to us in the future. So please do come on the show and, and let Paul know or anybody else if you think you might fancy it. I'm going to need some random days off here and there now that I'm, you know, the most senior politician on the panel. I've got work to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, anyway, so we are going, you are going, sleep, have a nice sleep, wake up ready to fight the capitalist system tomorrow, and I will see you next week. Okay, then? Bye. Bye. Bye.